Hello, everyone. You are now listening to Research Digest, a radio show to keep class updated with current research in science with emphasis in physics, engineering, computer science, and psychology. I am your host, Jim. And I am Mitch, also your co-host, Jim. Hey, everyone. Uh, before we get started, let's begin with the acknowledgement of country. We would like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people who are the traditional custodians of the land on which Wurundjeri is created. We pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. We acknowledge that the name Wurundjeri was taken from the Wadi Wadi Nation without permission and we are striving to do better for future reconciliation. Alright, so this week we are back with Mitch as our co-host. We had Yatmesh last week who covered some engineering topics. So what do you have for us today, Mitch? Well, uh, I've got a couple more psychology topics. I think I said last time that I was here I'd bring something to suit a science, but um, I was too lazy this week, so I just got some uh, <laughs> psychology ones that are a bit easier. Sorry, which just having some technical issues. Hello, hello, testing. Oh, good. Okay, sorry, we're just having some technical. Sorry issues. about that. Um, we're just checking that we can be heard now. Yep. All right. All right. So. Cool. We've got some more psychology topics today. Yes, from me, Mitch. I don't know if the listeners have heard, but it's uh, Jim and Mitch that are hosting. <laughs> Sorry. Closer. Okay. Good. All right. Sorry about that. <laughs> I'll learn how to host a radio show one day. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so onto the topic. So my first topic um, there's a lot of research in psychology that has looked into how people behave in group contexts and in particular how people will bend backwards to try and conform to what the group's um, norms and opinions are. Um, there's a lot of interesting research on how people will sort of mistrust what they see or hear or even think to uh, if they're surrounded by people that think something that even at first glance is like immediately not true. Um, so with this kind of um, background of understanding how malleable people's opinions are in sort of a group context, um, this study kind of pushed back against that idea a little bit. Um, have you heard about any of these kinds of studies, Jim? Have I mentioned any? I can't remember. Um, not quite, but I have a general idea of like what it's about about yep. how individuals can tend to be uh, influenced by the general group mindset. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, there are some interesting old papers where um, a participant was shown two different lines or three different lines or something, and they were asked to say, like, which is the longest line? And it's a relatively easy task if you sort of are able to see the lines and trust your own um, judgment, then you can you can do well on this task. But if 
it was found that if participants were placed with um, four other people that were acting in the scenario, they were, they were told to choose the wrong line. Um, a third of the time participants would choose a line that visibly was not the longest when they were actually asked to do so. Um, okay, only a third of the time. A third. Still, a third is a, a massive number of people that are doing something that, so like, um, well, I, I guess, what do you think you would do? You, you're in class, this is physics, and teachers ask like a dropkick question, right? Okay. And then three other people in your row give an obviously incorrect answer. What, what do you do? <laughs> it depends on who those three other people are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, good answer. Fair enough. <laughs> anyway, so um, what this paper was doing, it had people participate in um, a zero-sum game competition. So they're playing against each other. Um, this is a particular sort of subdomain of these kinds of questions. But the game was, um, so there were two players. One player was um, sort of offering a, a bid almost to the other player. So it was uh, $10 that they had to work with. And um, the first player would offer a split of that $10. It could be 50-50. It could be like $7, $3. It could be $10 all to them or all to their player. It was entirely up to the person. And okay. then the other player had the chance to either say yes or no. And if they agreed, um, then the, the split would be carried out. Each player would get the agreed upon amount. And if they disagreed, then neither player would receive anything. Um, so, sorry, I heard it was uh, three players? Uh, two players. Two sorry. players, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, the, well, the, the, the idea here was that um, the, the second player that was choosing kind of had an opportunity to punish the first player. So say we were splitting $10 between the two of us yeah. and I offered you $2 and myself $8. Okay. Well, firstly, out of curiosity, what would you do? Um, probably decline. Decline. Why is that? Because I'm getting uh, the shorter end of the stick. But now you're choosing between $2 and $0. Um... If, if, for example, this game will continue, say, 10 more times, then mm -hmm. if I decline for the first time, then that will make you make a fairer deal next time. Ah, this man has a game theoretic mindset. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, no, you're not wrong. Um, it's, I actually didn't look too much into whether this was repeated trials. I wouldn't be surprised if it was just one trial for exactly that reason. Okay, um, then I can imagine that if only one trial, some people just decline out of spite. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> out of spite. Spite for what, though? For receiving a bad deal. Yeah, it's it's like sort of conflicts with what they feel like they do in, in that scenario, right? <laughs> Is that kind of the intuition? What's the result? Pretty much that. <laughs> Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll read out some quotes. So um, the, the prevailing view before this study was that individuals form expectations based on what they view as typical. So if everyone around me is selfish, then I'm going to learn to accept selfishness and behave accordingly. Um, but we show that your judgments of other people's behavior really depend on how you behave yourself. So what that's about is um, that's putting this back in the context of sort of um, 
people around you and there being this idea of a group norm. So um, what was kind of expected was that um, if people were led to believe that um, even if you were offered a bad deal, you should still accept the bid because that's sort of one of the values of the group. The group is selfish. If you're given the chance to offer an unfair bid, you, you would, because why not? You get more money. Um, but it was found that if people independent of a group were more likely to offer a fair bid, so if they offer you 50-50, um, those kinds of people would still um, be stubborn even when surrounded by selfish people, which is kind of surprising. Does that kind of make sense? Um, so if someone offers you a fair deal independently, mm -hmm. um, what, what's their what's the um, outcome? So, um, so there's sort of there's a few things going on. So there's um, the the two types of people they've they've kind of been categorized in this study. There are people that offer selfish deals and people that offer fair deals. Okay. So a selfish deal is like trying to get yourself more money. Fair deal is just fifty fifty. And then alongside that, there is the surrounding sort of mentality. Um, is the group a selfish group or is the group a generous group? So what do you mean by group? I saw this only like a pair of people making, like one person making the deal to another. Yeah. Um, where does the group come from? Yeah, no, good question. I should have explained that better. Um, so I, I, I believe there were other people around playing the same game um, I don't think they were actual participants, but um, they were offering unfair deals and um, the actual participants were placed in a room with those people and they would just get the sense of what the kinds of deals being offered are. Okay, and are the surrounding sense. people accepting the bad deals? Um, if they're selfish, then yes. So say, um, say I'm the type of person to offer an unfair deal. Say I'm the type of person to offer for me to get $8 and you to get $2. Yeah. If someone does that to me, I'm more likely to accept because that's sort of like, I think the, the intuition is that that's like um, a reasoning that I accept and agree with. If I was in the other person's shoes, I would do the same thing. So it's sort of like... Okay, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So the the question that this study was kind of going into was, you have these two different types of people, people that offer fair deals and people that offer unfair deals. Yeah. What happens if you put them in a room with the opposite sort of um, mentality? Will they conform or will they, um, well, will they conform, which is sort of what you'd be led to believe by reading previous literature on conformity and seeing how people sort of change. Mm, okay. By that, do you mean putting only two, like one pairing of two people, for example, they offer fair deals into a group of people who offer unfair deals. Is that what you mean by putting one group into another? Um, yeah, it can be, it would just be the person that is accepting the deal because... Only the person accepting. Yeah, because I think if two people offering fair deals were put into a room of unfair dealers, then they just offer each other fair deals and there wouldn't be much of a wouldn't be much of sort of a, a group dynamic because it'd be mixed. Okay. Yeah. Whereas if they are put together in with people who offer fair deals, then the person 
receiving the deal will most likely decline if he gets an unfair deal? Um, yes. If he is someone that is sort of classified as a generous person. So if they're the kind of person that would offer a fair deal, okay, they're more likely to um, decline an unfair deal. What about you have two people <laughs> <laughs> who likes giving out unfair deals into a group of people who give out fair deals? I think... Let's just change it to, to one person. So, so the person that is accepting or declining the deal, um, they're the person that we, we really um, sort of see, see the results from. Yeah. So um, let's, let's just change that scenario a little bit to, um, so one person that offers unfair deals into a group that offers fair deals. Yeah. More likely to decline. Okay. Right? Yeah, yeah. Weird. Um, so it's completely depending on their surrounding. So um, well, almost the opposite, d depending on their initial sort of outlook. So um, the, the surprising thing about the study is that um, people that tend to offer unfair deals are less likely to punish unfair deals, so to decline. Ah, so that's the surprising part of the study. Yes. Um, and it's just surprising because it's, the, the expectation is that if they were put into a group with um, fair dealers, that they would sort of assimilate, right? Yeah. But they have this mentality that um, they, they just tend to be the kind of person that offers an unfair deal. So they sort of stick to their guns, which is just sort of a surprising um, finding. Um, so is that what you said about the one third of the time? that they will accept that or decline that? Oh, the one third, so the one third was, the one third was a different study. So oh, okay, okay. Um, different yeah. literature, that was about the, the lines one. Um, but yeah, no, so there was, so, so that was the actual study, but there was also some cross-cultural study that the um, team did. So it was found that individuals um, sometimes punish others for their self selfishness or generosity in a uh, collaborative game involving resource sharing, it was found that when deciding whether and how much to punish others, participants were guided primarily by their own behavior and less by the pressure to conform. People who behaved generously tended to punish selfishness and people who put their own welfare first were much more likely to punish generosity, even in situations where one approach was more common than the other. So this is just sort of validating that finding cross-culturally that um, people that are more selfish tend to be more amenable to selfish deals even when they're the one that's down. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. If you think about it, if you want to tolerate your own behavior, then you need to tolerate what other people are doing. Like if you want to persuade yourself that your behavior is justified. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I had a similar um, kind of intuition. I think, um, well, there were two things that came to mind for me when I was reading this paper. One was, um, and I was trying to think of an example in, in my own life to bring up, but 
the the yeah so the first one was when you want to to conform to a group when you want to sort of um align your attitudes and behaviors with what the people around you sort of are um outputting there's kind of this sense that you want to belong to that group it you actually you sort of care about fitting in but i can imagine in a scenario like this especially because it's zero sum it's um it's competitional it's it's competition based if you are someone that is distinctly sort of i don't know generous and you're put with a group that is selfish you might almost react sort of in a more hostile way you might be more inclined to say like no screw this this isn't me i'm going to stick to my guns and i'm not going to assimilate to the behavior of the people around me um ah, okay so this is like a special case i think so yeah it's so the sort of group conformity i i think uh, the way i'd say it is group conformity can be sort of moderated by how much a person actually wants to belong to a group or how much they actually value group membership right and well the other thing i thought of was cognitive dissonance have you heard of that sounds cognitive cognitive dissonance no i haven't it's i'll bring back a, another paper maybe that looks into it in a later week it's pretty interesting on its own um but cognitive dissonance is sort of a, a general theory around how people um understand and massage their beliefs and behaviors into something that's consistent with each other so like um the a classic example is well I don't know if it's classic but it was in a lot of textbooks is um smoking so um the the idea is that when you smoke it's in in modern day it's very well known that smoking is quite bad for you so how do people sort of rationalize that in their heads because if you smoke and you know that smoking is a bad habit then it sort of forces you to believe that i'm a person that doesn't value health or i'm a person that doesn't um uh believe in uh medical research or something like that i don't know um but the idea is that there's some kind of conflict there between your um beliefs and your actions so um and that that conflict is called dissonance and there's a lot of research into how people sort of mitigate that dissonance and there are lots of different ways um the most obvious is just by changing behavior but there are other sort of cognitive routes as well so you could say something like um you could add a third belief that is something like um smoking is bad for you but i only smoke one cigarette a day so it's probably fine something like that <laughs> all right i think that's a great introduction to cognitive resonance dissonance this dissonance all right yes we definitely have a great discussion about it next time we bring it up sounds good so, sounds good but for now let's take a short break and then we can move on to our next research topic and welcome back hello hello now next we have a physics topic and the topic is that matter materials can trap light to become 10 times more magnetic matter materials that trap light yes okay all right there so the, there's a lot of there's a lot you're going to have to explain in there for me yeah so actually i'm 
on a bit of, bit of a background. This mm. is more on the um, um, magneto-optics side of physics. Uh, in the past, we've had um, we've explored a lot of astrophysics, a lot of particle physics. But yeah, this is belongs to the field of material physics, which is something quite new, and we started to look into it more this semester. Also oh, on Researchers Digest, like as a, as yeah. a field, it's quite an old. Yeah, makes yeah. sense. So this is quite exciting. So yeah. I don't I don't know this too too much about it myself, but I've been learning some new stuff since doing this topic on this semester. Awesome. Keen to learn with you. Yes. So yes, a bit of a background explanation. So magneto optics describes the interaction of electromagnetic radiation with magnetic materials. Now electromagnetic radiation is basically light. It's okay. it's um one type of electromagnetic radiation in, in the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And the magneto-optic device is, for example, uh, do you know a magneto-optical disc? Like in, in the olden days, we have those DVD players, and then you insert it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those circular discs. That's like one classical example of a magneto-optic device. Magneto-optic device. Oh, so... My understanding of how those old discs work is that there was a little reader that would flip the polarity on certain points on that disc. Is that is that actually the mechanism for how that works? Um, I don't know the exact mechanism of it, okay. but <laughs> this is like one example of a magneto-optic device because you do need some like optical data yep. and then use a magnetic device to read the data. Yeah, gotcha. So what this study I'm bringing up is that a team of researchers showed that trapping light in a magnetic material enhances its intrinsic properties. And controlling electromagnetic phenomena is at the core of modern technology. You have control over magnets, you have control over light, electricity, charged particles, and any combination of these. And you get to make a lot of things, basically. A lot of electronics, actually that's everything that makes up our technology. So there aren't many situations where light and magnetism actually interact very strongly. Most of the time you have electricity or charged particles. So in the past, many magneto-optical systems call they need very sensitive light detection devices because light and magnetic field don't really interact that strongly in a lot of materials that we, we know. Um, this new study was led by Vinod Menon and his research group at the City College of New York. Um, this paper was published in Nature. The team's work featured a metamaterial that is made of chromium, sulfur, and bromine, which belongs to a class known as magnetic van, van der Waals materials. Now, you might be wondering, what is a metamaterial? <laughs> I'm wondering a lot right now, but we can start there. Yes, of course. A meta material is basically a, any material that's engineered to have a property that is rarely observed in naturally occurring materials. It's basically artificial materials. Yeah. They are made from assemblies of multiple elements fashioned from composite materials such as metals and plastics. So... 
what might be an example of a property? Are we talking like crazy, um, I don't know, compression strength or like, like how magnetizable? For example, do you remember the superconductor we talked about last two weeks ago? Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I do remember. Yeah, so they are. I guess that's a type of metal material because we kind of try to create that in the lab. Yeah. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. And of course, this property is superconducting. Superconducting with quotation mark. With quotation marks. Oh wait. Oh yes, it... you wasn't. You weren't here last week. Basically, I covered that the superconductivity of LK ninety nine was, um, was falsified. Was falsified. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That that was my understanding as well. I um I was surprised you used quotations because I thought that some new research had come out saying <laughs> actually it kind of is, but maybe not. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Now this new material it contains firmly bound excitons called quasi particles with robust optical interactions. Now you might be wondering what is an exciton or quasi particle. Oh my God! You're reading my mind, Jim. Now, you know what an electron is? Yes, an electron. Yes. In a molecule, say a uh, water molecule, you have oxygen and hydrogen. And with it comes electrons, depending on the amount of charge you have in that molecule, and you try to balance that. Sure. And then if you have another, a different molecule next to it, now if you have one, mole one molecule with uh, one extra electron and the other molecule with one less electron, then the net charge of the two molecules is, is zero. Yep. Now, but there is an imbalance because one molecule has one extra and one molecule has one less electron. This, um, the molecule with, with one less electron, the, we call that a hole. A hole, okay. Yeah, essentially, it's the absence of electron, yep. which is, we call a hole. And then, we call the pairing between an electron and a hole, we call them an exciton. Gotcha, okay. So and so, so this is a, a, a binding between two particles by that difference in charge? Um, you can interpret it that way, but it's more, it's more to do with the pairing between an electron and a hole. Gotcha, oh, so it's because, specifically Because electrons electron. can jump into the hole, given excitation. Yeah, it sounds like and an awesome what, game of what, quantum. What golf. is what is jump? What is jump is actually what creates um, light. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it also absorbs light. Yeah, either creates or absorbs. Gotcha. Okay. It and depending on the energy level. So, can I make a guess that it will create light if it's a jump towards? more of a net zero charge between the two particles and it will no 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 sorry opposite if it's a deviation from from net zero it'll create light and uh, it's not really about net zero but it, it all depends on the property of the individual like what type of material the molecule is inside of oh man materials physics is so confusing every material has its own properties so and we specifically try to engineer different types of material to suit our need. Gotcha. So back to the electron and hole combination. So we call that an exciton. And they are called quasi-particle because a hole is not really a particle despite it has positive charge. It's, all it is is an absence of electron, but then 
it sort of behaves like a particle because when do the calculations, it acts exactly like a positive particle there, but it, except it's not really a particle. So right, we call that okay. we call an exciton a quasi particle. Gotcha. So it's like throwing around minus one apples, but you can actually catch it. Yes. Okay. That's a, that's a very good analogy. We should do some physics. But <laughs> <laughs> well, as I said, um, these excitons, these electron and hole pairs, they are firmly bound inside the material. And because of this, the substance has the ability to capture light on its own. Okay. So when light goes into the material, the electron will absorb the light and then jumps into the position of the hole. Gotcha. Okay. So like a bit of a battery going on. Um, sort of, sort of, yeah. Okay. The research demonstrates that the material's optical sensitivity to magnetic events are orders of magnitude greater than those of conventional magnets. Say um, that again for me, sorry. So the sensitivity to... To magnetic light. events. Okay. So magnetic event is different from light. Yeah. Yeah, we're now exposing it to magnetic fields. Yeah. So magnetic field is like you have a compass and then you point toward the north. That's yep. it's responding to the Earth's magnetic field. Gotcha. Okay. Now we can always put external magnetic field by putting some charged plates and um, put the material inside a magnetic field mm. and we see how it responds. So that's the experiment that they're doing. Gotcha. Okay. Now since the material is really good at absorbing light. So light is stored inside the material in, in some sort of way. Mm -hmm. And they will bounce back and forth inside the magnet. The, I'm sorry, the light will? Yeah. Okay. Oh, like I thought it was... Bounce back and forth inside the material. Oh, okay. And so does that mean that electron hole pairs are kind of jumping up and down all over the place and releasing that light again and that's sort of how it bounces around is that what you mean yeah basically the electron hole pairs they absorb they can absorb a lot of light and the yeah. light inside the material can bounce around except maybe bouncing around is not really a good way but then we're kind of mixing quantum mechanics with classical mechanics because absorbing light and with the electron hole pairs is more like a quantum phenomenon Whereas bouncing around in some material is what you associate with light in the classical sense. Actually, so, okay, that kind of <laughs> makes sense because it's like a sort of a discrete amount of light that would get absorbed. Yeah. Each, um, event. Yeah. Okay. But if you consider light in the classical sense, then light will act like as a wave, and a yeah. wave can bounce around inside material. Gotcha. So, okay, so like kind of propagating, but in discrete units throughout the material. Yeah, basically it's stored and they're bouncing around. Like yeah. if it's a bit like if you have two mirrors and you shine a light into one mirror, and have two mirrors parallel with each other, then the light will bounce around between the two mirrors. Yeah, gotcha. It's a bit it's a bit like that. And actually this is exactly the kind of system for an optical cavity. For an optical cavity, okay. So what's that? If you have two mirrors of, of certain distance that corresponds to an, a multiple of the wavelengths of the light, mm -hmm. then that essentially creates an optical cavity. And what that does is the amplitude of the light inside the cavity will 
be reading. So I will add up. Will add up. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's like when you have a a, a rope tied to one end and you try to shake it, it creates a wave. Yeah. But if you shake it at exactly the right frequency, it creates a standing wave that just gets greater and greater. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Uh, there's um. Oh, my, my mind's going back to, I think, <laughs> guitar diagrams. Or, <laughs> or maybe this is actually a 12 physics I'm thinking of now. Okay. That's that is kind of interesting, though, because it kind of... So the light... Oh, no, actually, I, I, was thinking, I was thinking of it as a particle bouncing around this optical cavity, but the amplitude's adding to, requires you to think of, of a wave as well. So I guess it is just classical. That is the, the tricky part with quantum mechanics because you have to sort of interpret light in two different ways yeah and at certain times you have to think of it this way and another time you think of it another way yeah. but like mathematically it all works out it's just a matter of how we interpret <laughs> oh okay the math and math says so fair enough fair enough i can't argue against that Yaganish probably won't be too happy <laughs> <laughs> i can imagine him already so when the team applied an external magnetic field. Um, the near-infrared reflection of light is altered so much, the material basically changed its color. And that's just to reflect on how much, how sensitive the material is to magnetic field. Wow, yeah, okay. So ordinarily, light does not really respond to magnetism. So this is why technological applications based on magneto-optic effects often require the implement implementation of sensitive optical detection schemes. Right. Um, in contrast, the team noticed that when light enters the material, it exhibits interaction with ex excitons in a way that it is trapped inside, and it results in it becoming 10 times more magnetic, the, the material that is. Yeah, wow, okay. The, so w what kinds of applications could this new, um, new kind of material have? Yeah, like, yeah, there will be quite a lot of implications, such that how I mentioned that a lot of our electronic devices are kind of dependent on like optical and electronic and magnetic like on these sort of mechanisms. Gotcha. Given such strong interactions between like, magnetism and light on on this material, we can hope to one day create magnetic lasers and maybe. We consider old concept of optically controlled magnetic memory. So how easy is it to... So my mental model right now is you've got this like block of... Let's call it obsidian. I don't know how to imagine <laughs> this material. <laughs> you pour in some light, it's, it's, its properties dramatically change. It's responsive, responsiveness to, to magnetic fields. Yeah. Is it easy to remove the light again? Is, can you treat it like an on-off switch? Oh, that is a good question. Yeah, um, the research didn't really say whether you can um, extract the light, but I assume that the trapping of the light is temporary. Yeah, That's surely if you I shake it hard about. enough, right? <laughs> that checks out. <laughs> yeah, I, I would assume that the, the trapping of the light is temporary and then like given enough time or even given some little time, the light will just get out of it. They they actually need to try to trap the light inside. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. It, it sounds like an important. Oh, well, the ability to turn it off, I'm sure, is 
as important as being able to turn it on, make something sensitive to magnetic fields. <laughs> Imagine a bit you can only set and you can never clear it. <laughs> a bit of a useless computer. Anyways, I think that ends our topic of the magnetic material. And we'll take a short break before we come back to our psychology topic. Yes, indeed. All right. Welcome back. Hello. So I uh, am back with my second topic for psychology. Would you like to hear about that, Jim? Um, depending on the topic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So ladies and gentlemen, here is why Jim's a psychopath. I've compiled um, <laughs> a vast <laughs> list of observations and notes, and I think you'll be convinced by the end of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to start with, we'll bring in Alex and <laughs> Jim's housemate. Uh, I'm sure you'd have a thing or two to say shortly, right? No. Okay. Actually, so the um, the the research that I brought for my second topic, um, it was a meta-analytic study in uh, to to link personality and intelligence. Oh. Okay. So there's I've talked about personality a bit before, but not so much intelligence on the on the show. But so there's been a lot of research into sort of the individual differences in personality, what makes people unique. And I've mentioned before the big five model. Yes, we covered that two weeks ago. Yeah. I'll quickly go through that again. Um, but um, so this study was looking at personality, personality through that kind of model and comparing it with intelligence. So um, have you guys covered meta-analytic research here before? No. What is that? It's... Uh, much more common in psychology, I think. Um, intuitively, I'd guess it doesn't crop up as much in, in physics, but I'm curious to ask. Um, so meta-analytic research is basically just research um, using past papers as their data. So they don't do an actual experiment. They just trawl through using some criteria, um, data that's been found before. And um, the, the gist is that you can sort of collate lots of different findings all together and find trends that sort of... Um, uh, a robust across studies, if that makes sense. So in psychology, they're kind of um, a, a gold standard, especially because of how statistical a lot of the research is. Okay. Um, that's a bit of like a review. A review, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, these researchers, they collected data from over 1,300 studies, which involves over 2 million individuals. And using that, they were able to analyze the relationship between 79 personality constructs and 97 cognitive abilities. I'm not going to go through all of them, but... <laughs> why not? <laughs> why not? Oh, good question, Jim. How much time do we have? Um, okay, so the, the big five from it. I'll do a super quick review of that. So um, as a, a handy acronym, we've got OCEAN. So the first one is openness to experience. So this describes if someone is open to new ideas or they prefer sort of familiar things. Conscientiousness describes how organized and responsible someone is. Extroversion describes if someone is outgoing and likes to be around others. Agreeableness, how kind and cooperative someone is. And neuroticism, how, uh, how much someone experiences negative emotions. And so the rest of this paper is kind of um, tying different facets of these um, five traits to different cognitive abilities. So um, 
well, let's get, let's get some audience participation. Jim, are there any there that sort of sound like they might be more or less correlated with intelligence? Um, so out of the five, out of the five you mentioned? Yeah. Um, intelligence. I'm not quite sure. Um, yeah, they all sound like personality traits. Mm-hmm. I, I interpret intelligence as you know, the ability to do stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's sensible. And um, that's kind of how the research has, has gone as well. Um, they've just been sort of treated as separate things. Um, conventionally, um, openness to experience, so that's the O, has been tied to intelligence. So how willing someone is to engage with new ideas generally is sort of, um, I don't know, it reminds me of that quote. Um, uh, uh, don't, don't catch me up because I don't remember who it was, but, um, the, uh, a sign of intelligence is being able to, um, entertain an idea without accepting it. Right. Okay. Is I, that, have you heard of that? Um, I don't know. I don't quite. know where it's from. I studied philosophy, but I don't remember that. It's all out of my head. <laughs> but That's anyway. like doing computer science now. True. <laughs> um, so that's kind of a well-known correlation, but the contribution of this paper is some correlations that were uh, between sort of less associated personality traits and intelligence. So um, the what we'll start with, I guess, the, the particular facets of openness. So that's the one that we already kind of know and is a bit unsurprising. But um, there are um, traits like curiosity and ideas or interest in ideas within openness that were positively correlated with uh, verbal and quantitative abilities. So that's the intelligence. Um, and there are sort of experience-related traits like um, your willingness to engage in fantasy or your appreciation of aesthetics, so like art or music. Um, that's also part of openness and that was also correlated with cognitive ability but a little bit less so. Are there different types of cognitive ability or in, or intelligence? Yeah. Um, so, oh, like I mentioned earlier, I'll just scroll up. But um, they outlined well, 97 cognitive abilities in this paper. So I'm sure many of them are more or less the same thing. But um, they they do sort of have some, some general ones here. Um, so, yeah, like verbal and quantitative abilities were... were correlated here with some facets of openness. Mm, Okay, yeah. And yeah, so this kind of makes sense. So openness is sort of, you can think about someone who's very curious about the world as someone that's sort of open. So it makes sense that if they engage more intellectually sort of with the world, they'd they'd have, um, it makes sense that a person like that would have uh, higher cognitive capabilities. But onto some of the sort of less intuitive correlations they found. So um, extraversion traits, um, so they reflect engagement with the external world, showed varying correlations. So the activity facet of extraversion, I'll get into that, um, had a positive correlation with uh, general mental ability and processing speed. So you might be wondering, Jim, it's my turn. What is activity? (laughs) Very good question. (laughs) So it's a facet of extraversion. 
um, active individuals, high activity individuals are energetic, enthusiastic, and fast moving. So they enjoy being busy, juggling multiple activities, uh, and that often translates into an eagerness to engage with the social world around them. Is there anyone you know like that, Jim? Yourself. Oh, I was thinking our, uh, <laughs> our, our co-host that isn't present right now that hates mathematicians. <laughs> That's a man who juggles an awful lot. <laughs> but thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. So uh, activity shows a strong positive connection with uh, several cognitive abilities, uh, indicating that individuals who are active and energetic tend to have better command of various cognitive abilities. So again, that was... Um, what was it? I'm pretty sure one was uh, recall, which I am not reflecting very well right now. <laughs> General mental ability and processing speed. That's it. Okay, so agreeableness. Again, agreeableness was uh, related to getting along with other people. Um, interestingly enough, had weaker relations with cognitive abilities. So, um, well, I suppose, sorry, not uh, unsurprisingly. Um, but there were some facets of agreeableness that correlated negatively this time as opposed to positively. So um, here, two sort of interesting facets of agreeableness were compassion and politeness. So, well, I guess you can, we can make a bit of a guess. What, what do you reckon, Jim? Um, if one of those two was to correlate positively with intelligence, which one would that be? Between compassion and politeness. Compassion. Compassion. Yep, exactly. Yeah, that, that's what was found here. Um, and politeness is negative connection. Negatively correlated, yeah. How much? Uh, both were weak here, um, but they offer a bit of an explanation here. Um, so uh, to quote just here, uh, it could be that learning social rules... Uh, is a means for compensating for lower ability to take on the world's complexity alone. So my takeaway from that is uh, learning social rules is kind of uh, an agreeable thing. You're sort of um, uh, adapting behaviors and um, assumptions from the people around you as a way of um, coping with the world and just sort of giving you a structure for how to behave. And yeah. if you rely on that too much, it may be an indicator that you aren't um, as much in the habit of generating your own kind of rules. That kind of makes sense. Yeah, that's how I interpret it. Um, and alternatively, uh, being polite may distract our cognitive resources from controlling our behavior to avoid being rude or confrontational. So, I mean, I don't know about you, but I can kind of relate to that. <laughs> Have you, you ever been in like a, a, a group um, project and you're just it's like your first meeting maybe and all these crazy different ideas are flying around and it's like yeah some of these aren't very good but you want to sort of keep the cohesion and eventually you lose track of what's going on um, I don't quite relate to that I've, <laughs> I've, I've barely had any experience with group projects like that oh wow jealous <laughs> but I wish I had it would be quite interesting Yeah, okay. So that was um, agreeableness. And then well, conscientiousness. What do you reckon about that, Jim? So conscientiousness is discipline and hardworking. Oh, Positive, negative, four. strong, weak correlation. 
Okay, I'm going to take a guess at negative. Negative. Interesting. Why is that? Um, if you are, if you spend too much time being organized and trying to work hard, you get less less stuff done. <laughs> I feel like that's very much a st- uh, uh, an insight onto how Jim goes about studying. <laughs> Are you a high chaos studier, no, 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 Jim? Okay, I I've I've seen a quote saying that like Einstein, like Einstein, like his desk is a complete mess. So I've got mm. the association that like the if you're messy, that means you're able to keep track of like the mess in your head. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that's a really interesting insight. I think. Um, so. Just for the record, uh, th- this paper did find a positive correlation between conscientiousness and um, intelligence. And the, the general gist is that if you're able to work harder, you're more motivated, then you can um, dedicate yourself more to learning about whatever it is that you're studying. Um, but I see where you're coming from in terms of being like too rigid and too structured. I think that almost goes back to the openness that we were talking about. If you're so rigid with the schedule, then... Maybe mm, you want. There's a bit of similarity. Yeah, yeah. All right. So I think we'll start wrapping up there. Um, there was more neuroticism, but maybe we can go into that next time. Um, do you want to quickly just cover it? Yeah. Okay. Sure thing. Um, so uh, neuroticism. So again, this was the trait involving uh, negative emotions and your sort of um, susceptibility to them. Um, they were modest at the global neuroticism level, but stronger at um, sort of facet level. So um, there are particular sort of like little um, uh, instantiations of uh, neuroticism that were more highly correlated. So uh, depression, uneven temper, suspiciousness and anxiety had sizable negative correlations with cognitive abilities, um, which I guess isn't too surprising. It's, it's similar to the politeness thing. I think if it's almost like a distraction. If, if your mental energy is being um, taken up by dealing with these negative emotions, then you're less able to dedicate yourself to whatever the, the task at hand is. All right. I think that's a good place to stop here. Um, thanks for sharing the topic. Now, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, next week, we'll be back for another episode of Researcher's Digest where Yagnish, our mathematician friend, will be back. (laughs) (laughs) And hopefully cover some engineering topic. And as always, see you next time. Have Have a great day. Thanks, everyone.